Good morning. How's everybody? Good? Good. It's been a couple of weeks since I have been up here, which is weird. I can't remember the last time I missed two weeks in a row. But um, last week, Mike was up here, did baptism for me. I was actually here on Saturday. I couldn't be here last week on Sunday because I was out in Coffee County because we're, we're trying to figure something out with uh, planting a church out there. And, um, and so that's where I was last weekend. But we had 81 people get baptized last week. That's good. Good. And then two weeks ago, we had Joe teach, and um, he did chapters five and six. I hope you liked Joe. Joe was great, right? If you, if you live in the Coffee County area and you didn't like Joe, that kind of sucks because he's going to be our pastor out there when we start a church out there. Um, no, he's fantastic. Joe's a great guy, and he would have laughed at that. He would have thought that was a funny joke. So he's actually out in Tullahoma today and um, teaching somewhere, and Again, we're trying to trying to work something out in, in that area. Glad to be here, though. Hope you're glad to be here. So we've been working through Esther, and um, we have this weekend and next weekend, and we are done. That's kind of kind of sad because I've I've really grown to love this book of the Bible. If you haven't been here, I'm going to very 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 briefly catch you up, and you'll still have to go back and reread this to kind of get the full gist of where we are. But if this is your first time here, it's fine. There's lots of principles and and um, lessons that we can learn from today, even if you haven't been here for the other sermons. That's, that's perfectly fine. But the book of Esther, which is right after the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, written about 2,500 years ago. In the first couple of chapters, we meet the king of Persia, uh, a really interesting individual named Xerxes, who is showing off his wealth and his power and his prestige and parading it around. And at the end of chapter one, um, he wants to bring out his wife to be paraded around. And we find out she does not want to be paraded around. So that doesn't go very well. He ends up disposing of his wife. Her name is Vashti. It doesn't say this, but we, we kind of get the implication that she was killed and disposed of. And now they needed to hunt for a new queen, right? So they send out a thing all over the Persian Empire and they collect all the most beautiful virgins, which means uh, these would have been girls 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, kids. They would round up all these young girls, bring them to the king. He would sleep with them after they were you know, kind of uh, dolled up a little bit through this beautification process. He would sleep with all these different, I say, girls, and then he would choose a queen. That's what he did, and we found out that um, because God's provision and all this, that it ended up being a little 14-year-old Jewish girl named Esther who became the queen. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, uh, queen Esther's kind of adopted father is a Jewish man named Mordecai. He gets into a confrontation with a guy named Haman who comes from a long line of people that hate the Jews because Haman hates Mordecai and Haman hates the Jews. He passes a law that on a specific day, everyone goes out and kills all the Jewish people. And of course, this leads to a lot of drama and a lot of chaos and confusion. And Mordecai approaches Esther and says, we have to fix this. You're the queen. Fix this. And so in chapters five and six, Esther starts to fix it. She starts to fix it because she is depending on God. Now, she's about 20 years old at this, at, at this point. She prays, she fasts, she has a plan. And in chapters five and six, we see that she's gonna have a, a, a series of dinner parties with her, the king, and Haman with the intention of exposing Haman's plan to the king. It's gonna get super awkward in chapter seven, this dinner party, right? It's gonna be fun. So what we talked about last or two weeks ago, Joe talked about obedience, that it was through Esther's obedience to God that she was able to know what to do and how to handle the situation and how to help her people, right? So obedience is a big deal. This week, we're gonna talk about trust. We're gonna talk about obedience a little bit as well. And we're gonna talk about that when we trust and obey God, it doesn't, it doesn't just help us. It will start to positively affect the people around us. We're gonna talk about a lot of fun stuff today. But this is gonna be the thing that we will, we will kind of end on uh, in chapter seven and eight. That's a really happy first picture uh, to show you guys. So um, anyways, you should've got a notes handout when you walked in. It's a relevant picture. It's just not a very fun picture. Uh, you should've got a notes handout when you walked in. Has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens. If you have an app, uh, the, the church app, the Experience Community app, just click on sermon notes. And if you have a Bible, right after the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, we have Esther and we will do all of chapters seven and eight. Then you guys can go enjoy the rest of your Sunday, okay? All right, let me pray. Again, good to see you guys. Let me pray for us. 
Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this building this morning, to, to have the freedom and the luxury, Lord, to, to study the word, to worship, to, to be with other believers, and maybe even non-believers who are seeking this morning. God, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that as we study your word today, I pray that you keep your hand on us, God, that you bless your church. We pray not just for our church, Lord. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. And Father, we pray that as we go through the word today, that ultimately, ultimately, Lord, that you are honored and you're glorified, God. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Keep your hand on us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter seven. It's gonna get super awkward at this dinner party. Here we go. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask for will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even if it's half the kingdom, will be done for you. Queen, answer, queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from there where, where they were drinking wine to the garden palace or the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. That can't be good. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs said, there is a gallows 75 foot tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. That's a sitcom and a half right there, right? Or, or a lot of drama in there. Soap opera, I shouldn't have said sitcom. Um, it's actually pretty disturbing. You ever heard the phrase, what goes around? This is a perfect example with Haman. Haman has been scheming to kill Mordecai, scheming to kill all the Jews, and now he finds himself at a dinner party. It is Haman, King Xerxes, and Queen Esther, who is a Jew. And so Xerxes tells Esther, right? He's had a couple of glasses of wine. His wife is very, very attractive. He's very attracted to her. And he says, whatever you want, you can have it. Even if it is half the kingdom, Esther, it's yours. What do you want? And this opens up the door now for Esther's plan to unfold. And so she answers, Esther is very, very brilliant. The more I've studied this book, the more like I just think she is a very brilliant woman. Of course, that's by God's provision, but she's very smart with her words. She says, well, what I want is I want you to spare my life. Now, that sets up the real request of, and spare my people, save my people. And in that moment, Esther was actually taking a pretty big risk. No one knew that she was a Jew. So to identify herself now as a Jew could have gotten her instantly killed. So she puts herself out there, right? And she is trusting that God is going to pave a way, trusting that God's plan is going to unfold. Why did she trust that God's plan was going to unfold? A couple of things. One, she was obedient to God. Two, she was dependent on God. She knew that God was her only hope. She was wise because she prayed and fasted and asked for God's help. And not just that, she didn't sit passively by, she took action. This is an important one. We often obey God, we depend on God, we pray to God, but then we sit still and we just kind of wait for everything to like fall in place where sometimes we have to take that step of faith. 
It's like when people come up and they're like, man, Corey, can you pray for my financial situation? I'm like, well, sure, where are you working right now? They're like, oh, well, I don't work. Okay, that would help your financial situation. Maybe pray for God to give you a certain job and, and maybe pray for God to bless, and then be faithful with your finances and trust him and you'll be provided for. But we have to step, we, we have to take that step. Even in the book of James, it says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, but, but he, he knocks, he doesn't barge his way in. The Bible says we have to get up and let him in. We have to invite him in. We have to take a step, we have to take some action. And that's what Esther did. She took action, she was obedient, she was faithful. So the king, after she says, spare my life, spare my people's life, and then she says, well, well look, if I was just worried about being put into slavery, if me and my people were just gonna become slaves, she goes, I wouldn't have bothered you with that. She probably would have bothered him with that, but she's being very, very smart with her words. And after hearing everything that she said, about this scheme to kill her and her people. Xerxes says, who in the heck would devise such a scheme? Who would try to kill my wife and wipe out her people? There's only three people sitting at the dinner table, right? And that's just like, this guy, <laughs> this guy would do that. And then the ball kind of drops. It was, it was Haman, your second in command here. He's the one that wanted to kill me and all my people. And then it says that Haman stood terrified, right? No duh, he's probably very, very scared at this point. So after being exposed, he knows what's going to happen to him. He is a dead man. Xerxes takes off, he's gonna go to the garden, he's gonna hang out with some flowers and chill out a little bit out in the garden. He's gonna come back, he's still infuriated, and then we have this amazing twist of irony that sounds like Mel Brooks wrote it. And this amazing twist of irony where, where he wrote a bunch of comedy films, Mel Brooks, Spaceballs, things like, okay, anyways. So Haman trips, falls on the couch to where it looks like he's trying to sexually violate the queen. And this is when Xerxes walks in and he's like, first you try to kill my wife and her people, now you're trying to take advantage of her? And it says, right when the words came out of his mouth, Haman was done. They covered up his face, they're taking him off. They don't, they don't know exactly what they're going to do with him yet. And, <laughs> and then you have this one eunuch who's sitting there and he goes, hey, you know he just built a 75 foot tall gallow? It's in his yard, why don't we take him there? <laughs> That's crazy, man. And so there's this phrase that we sometimes use that people tie their own noose. Haman literally tied his own noose. As I get older in life, I'm, I'm 43 years old. As I get older in life, I am trusting God more that when people are divisive and destructive, I don't have to fight all my own battles. People tie their own nooses, right? God takes care of it. That doesn't mean that I don't have some responsibility in it, but I've learned as I get older to sit back. If someone's divisive and they say awful things, man, it, it, they'll take care. It, it'll be taken care of. So here's the thing. We do not believe in karma as Christians. Uh, Christians shouldn't say things like, well, that's just karma. You don't wanna buy into karma. And I'll talk about that a little bit later in the lesson, why karma is a really, really bad idea. We do believe, though, that we reap what we sow. Jesus said it this way to Peter. He said, Peter, if you live by the sword, you will, you will die by the sword. What you reap, you will sow. So we have to understand that, that what we reap has consequences or what we plant has consequences. The other thing is this, we have to understand that God's justice will always prevail. Listen, evil will always be dealt with. You may not see it in your lifetime, but when everything shakes down at the end, I give you my word, God will deal with all evil. All of it will be held into account and we have to remember that, all right? Next part, look, you just did all of chapter seven. Isn't that impressive? That day, that same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered into the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. This is, you know, that's her adopted father. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot that he had devised against the Jews. 
The king extended the gold scepter towards Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She says, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to him, to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. So, the same day of Haman's execution, the king gives Esther uh, basically Haman's entire estate and then Esther makes Mordecai the manager of that estate. Another thing that, that the king does is he has a signet ring. The signet ring would have been the license to basically do whatever you wanted to do. You push that ring down on some hot wax on a sealed letter and you can do anything you wanna do. He gives that ring to Mordecai, which is basically promoting him to the highest position in Persia, except for the king. Now, all of that sounds absolutely fantastic. That's all fine and good, except for the fact that the real problem still hasn't been resolved. This brings us to a principle that we often fall into. We can sometimes deal with the symptom of a problem and we do not get to the root of the problem. And it's just like a weed in your garden, right? If you just rip off the leaves of the weed, that root is still there and it eventually comes up. It becomes a problem again. And we often do this in our life. We deal with guilt and shame, but we don't deal with the root of the sin that causes these symptoms. And we have to get to the root of it. Now, here's a fun historical fact. This guy, Haman, came from a long line of people that hated and wanted to destroy the Jews, even way back in the time of King Saul. And so King Saul was told by God hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this to wipe out these descendants, these, these people that came before Haman, these people. And because Saul disobeyed God and did not completely get rid of these people, hundreds and hundreds of years later, a descendant of those people comes up and almost annihilates the people of God. The lesson is this, if we don't get to sin and eradicate it, eventually it will get you. Eventually it will come back to get you. We have to eradicate, we have to get to the root of that problem. So the villain was gone, but the problem was not. So Esther eventually lets her, her emotions go, finally. Right? Esther has been cool as a cucumber until, until this point in the story. And finally, she just kind of breaks a little bit. She starts weeping. She starts crying. My people are going to die. They're going to be annihilated. But look at how good she is. Even though she is letting her emotions flow, she still knows that there is a game that has to be played with Xerxes. This guy is a narcissist. He's the most powerful man on planet Earth. And though she is showing her emotions, she is also smart. She is also cunning and wise. And she says, if it pleases the king and if I am still pleasing in the eyes of the king, that is a direct reference to her beauty. That is a direct reference in, in the fact that she knows that, that he is enamored with her physically. And she uses this to a certain extent to her advantage. And so it is this balance. Listen, if you don't remember anything I say today, if you've been sleeping up to this point, you happen to be awake and you hear me for a second and you go back to sleep, just remember this part. In Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples before he sends them out like sheep among wolves, that's what the scripture says, before he sends them out into a dangerous, chaotic world, he says, you're gonna be like sheep among wolves. So he says, be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. What in the heck does that mean? Well, we see it in Esther right here, and this is how we are to approach every situation in life as Christians, to be shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. What that means is this. We are to be innocent in the fact that we stay away from evil, we are repentant of evil, we live the way that God tells us to live. That's called righteousness, right? We live in that. 
That's one thing we do. And if we are living the way God wants us to live, if we are innocent and righteous and living by God's standards, we can ask for the wisdom of God, which the Bible says if we ask for wisdom, he always gives it to us and he gives it to us in abundance. And we can pray for the gift of discernment and it gives us the ability to make sound, wise judgment. So we are to walk in righteousness and we are to also walk in wisdom, which is a gift from having a relationship with God. This is how Esther was handling this situation. This is how we should handle every situation that we walk into. Shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. And because Esther walked in this manner, because she was humble, because she was dependent on God, because she trusted in the wisdom of God, she receives the favor of God. And so Xerxes looks at her and says, okay, whatever pleases you, do whatever you have to do. If you wanna write a new law, I've already given Mordecai the power, write a new law. And whatever law was written was irrevocable. You could not overturn it. And I'll get to that here in a second in the next part. And that leads to some conflict here in a second, but it was an irrevocable law. So what we learn is this, and this is very, very important. If we walk with humility, and if we will follow God's commands, you will have everything you need when you need it. I give you my word on that. That doesn't mean prosperity gospel. That doesn't mean you're gonna like, oh man, I read the scripture and I have $100,000 in my bank account now. Where did it come from? That's not what that means. It means that if you are humble and if you trust God, God will pave the way for you. You will have everything you need to get where God wants you to go, where God wants you to go. And so if you're humble and if you trust him, okay? That leads us to the next part. On the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month of Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews to the satraps, the governors, the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus's name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. So if you have not been here, this is a big shift. It has gone from Mordecai being completely helpless to now Mordecai is writing a law that will save all of the Jewish people. Not only that, not only is Mordecai promoted and honored, he's given a staff and he's actually given more favor than what Haman ever received. If you go back to chapter three, chapter three and chapter eight almost look exactly the same, except that Haman's edict, he actually receives more power and more ability to get the word out. He gets mounted couriers that go out and ride out on horses and share the news that the Jews will be able to defend themselves. So here is what is interesting, because every law passed by Xerxes is irrevocable. So they passed a law that on a certain day, every Jew is going to be killed, right? That's a law and it cannot be reversed. So what do you do? They passed a second law that said, when people try to attack the Jews, the Jews now have the legal right to defend themselves and kill the people who are trying to kill them. Now that doesn't mean that the Jews can just go crazy and, and start slaughtering everybody that they don't like. There are restrictions to that. The Jews were not to initiate violence. They were to not uh, uh, be antagonistic and start hostile situations. This was simply a law that, okay, hold on a second. 
This was simply a law that said the people of God could physically defend themselves. Now, this is where in the United States, we have to be careful because we go to radical extremes when it comes to our defense as believers in Jesus Christ. You have camp number one, and I know this will inevitably offend somebody, but I'm saying this for your own good. We have camp number one that thinks it's really, really smart to put like a 45 caliber pistol on your gym shorts and walk around Kroger with it flopping around and like exposed and like, you know, your shorts falling down. They're like, well, Corey said I can defend myself. It says it in Esther, right? And so they're walking around and that's, listen, that's just not very smart. And I'm not trying to be a jerk. That's not smart. I believe in the second amendment. I believe in even the right to carry and conceal. But, but if, if like it's falling off of you, right? In, in a grocery store, there's a better way. That's, that's, that's foolishness. Then you have camp number two that believes because God is protecting me, I can do whatever I want, right? So because God is my protector, I'm gonna walk around at two o'clock at night on, you know, on Skid Row in Los Angeles because God is my protector. That's also pretty dumb. That's not a very smart thing to do. You literally have people who are Christians in the hills of Virginia walking around with rattlesnakes probably right now as I speak because they take a scripture of the Bible that says we will tread on serpents. It doesn't literally mean take off your shoes and start stepping on snakes. That's not what that means. It's a metaphor, right? That God will protect you and provide for you. But here's the thing about the Bible and here's the thing about you as a Christian. God has given us practical information to go on and God has given us brains to where we should use common sense. So here's the thing. Do you have the right to protect yourself? Absolutely. If you're a man in here and someone breaks into your home with the intent of hurting your wife and kids, do everything you can to protect your wife and kids. There's nothing wrong with that. That is perfectly okay. But the Christian also has to know and anticipate that there will come a time where we will have violent persecution and there's nothing you're gonna be able to do about it. Corey, why do you say it? Because the whole New Testament says it and the book of Revelation says it. There's gonna be a lot of martyrs and there will even be people who will give their lives for Jesus Christ in this nation one day. Maybe some of us will be alive to see that, right? So we have to strike this balance. Do you have the right to defend yourself? Of course you do. Do we need to anticipate the fact that one day people are gonna be persecuted for your faith? Yes, you need to anticipate that as well. And I'm gonna move on because that's not a popular topic, okay? All right, good, everyone's good. Last part, we're almost done. Mordecai went from the, you guys are like, man, it was so good the last couple of weeks. There was no sarcasm. <laughs> Joe was such a nice guy. Mike's a nice guy, right? Corey gets up there and he's talking about guns and Nike shorts. <laughs> Mordecai went from the king's presence, clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province, in every city where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups, this is really important, this last sentence, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. I'll explain what that means. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. So again, if you haven't been here, everything is reversed. Everything is shifted. And this part that I just read kind of highlights the fact that everything has, has kind of reversed. Once upon a time, again, Mordecai was ripping his clothes and ash in his hair, and he's scared that all his people are gonna be annihilated. And now he is writing a law and sending it out that's going to save his people. That's pretty crazy. Not just that, he has gotten promoted to the second most powerful person in the entire world at this time. And it says that he was wearing blue and white that showed that, that he was been adopted into the family, the king's family. He's now part of the royal family. And he was wearing purple linen and a crown, which shows that he has been promoted, right? He's a very, very powerful man now at this point. And so the celebration in Susa, after Mordecai's edict went out, there was a huge celebration, there was peace, there was joy, there was gladness, there was clarity. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, it's been maybe three, four weeks, in one of the earlier chapters, it says when the, when the first edict passed, I think it was chapter three, it says that there was mass confusion in Persia. 
They passed this law about all these people getting slaughtered. There was mass confusion. And then it says that the king and Haman sat down and had a drink, which is pretty disturbing. Now, the reason this is important and something we have to learn from that, and, and, and I hope you're listening to me this morning because you're living through it right now. Wherever there is massive amounts of confusion, there is massive amounts of evil. Do you hear what I'm saying? Whenever there is a society where the masses are confused, that's because there is an absence of God. How do we know that? We know that because the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. And if God is not the author of confusion, there's only one other person that can be authoring this stuff. There's only two forces in the universe, good and evil, right? God and the devil. And if God is not the author of confusion and a whole society, a whole nation lives in confusion, God must be absent from that nation. In fact, the Bible says that God is a God of order. God is a God of clarity, of peace. And as Christians, listen, we should be people, not of chaos, not of division, not of disorder. We should be people who are peacemakers, Jesus says. Orderly, that we are clear on what we believe and what we stand on, right? That we should be people that bring clarity to situations, not confusion to situations. I get a kick out of people when I teach a book of the Bible like Daniel or Revelation. I always get all these crazy emails, man. I get the crazy emails come out when I teach an apocalyptic book of the Bible and they say, Corey, you know, if you take every 13th word of every 14th sentence and you divide that by seven, add 10 to it, there's this thing in the Louvre that it leads you to and all this crazy stuff that people get from apocalyptic books of the Bible. Do you know what the word apocalyptic means? To reveal. There is no, God's, God's goal is not to confuse you or to conceal information from you. God's desire is to reveal information to you. So the book of Revelation, Revelation, is to expose information to you, not to hide it from you. The same thing with the book of Daniel. That's what it means by definition. So we as Christians are, are, are not trying to conceal or, or confuse. We're trying to bring clarity because God is a God of clarity. Not only is God a God of order and clarity, God's a God of contentment and joy. Now, Esther and Mordecai have been through it. Remember, Esther was a 14-year-old girl when she was abducted, put into the palace, forced to have a, a, a night with the king, right? And I know that's been kind of dramatized in movies and stuff. It probably wasn't like that. So this is a woman who had been through some pretty traumatic things, and she's only 20 years old at this point. You have Mordecai, who has also been through a lot of traumatic things. But through it all, they were faithful to God. And because they were faithful to God, they had joy and they had contentment. The Bible says gladness, right? Gladness and joy. And what we learn from that is God and the word of God does not promise you that life is going to be easy, but the word of God promises you that you can be fulfilled and content even though life is not easy. That's the beautiful thing of Christianity. Here's the thing. If you walk into a church and you hear that life is good and you're always gonna be prosperous in the financial standpoint of that, that everything's gonna be easy if, you, if, if you're a Christian, reach back and make sure that your wallet is still there, right? And find a different church because that one's not teaching the gospel. It doesn't mean that life sucks. I'm saying life is good regardless of how bad everything can be around us. The beauty of having Christ is that you can take everything from me, but as long as I have him, I still have peace. I still have contentment, I still have joy. And this idea that everything's gonna be easy is nowhere taught in the New Testament, nowhere. Jesus even said, one time a guy walked up and said, Jesus, I wanna follow you. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. We don't know where we're gonna sleep tonight. Still wanna go? I added that part in. But Jesus' point was, you can walk with me and there'll be nothing better that you could ever choose to do, but it's not always easy. It's, not always, it's good, but it's not always easy. And here's what's really fascinating. The last thing in this chapter, in chapter eight, says this, that after all of this happened, the, the, the provision of God, the miraculous work of God was so obvious, not just to the Jews, but to the non-Jews. Man, obviously God is working through these people. And it says the fear of the Jews had overcome the non-believers, the non-Jewish people. The word fear there literally means terror, right? 
And what that means is this, it doesn't mean that we live in constant terror of God. God's our, our heavenly father. He sticks closer than a brother. He's a friend. He's, he's a lot of things to us. We don't live in constant terror of God. What the non-believers realized was is that they were on the opposite side of the true God. And if I am on the opposite side of the creator, that should scare me because I'm on the wrong side. That's what that means. When we live in a relationship with God, people will see the power of God working through us. And this is often the initial step from non-believers becoming believers. What I mean is this. If you go into an argument with an atheist and you have your Bible and you're like, well, let me show you how right I am. Their response is, I don't believe in that book. And now you have nothing to stand on, correct? Now, if you take a different approach and you become friends with an atheist, if you show them love and compassion and you're with them and you build a relationship with them, and if their life inevitably starts to, to, to run into hard times, you can be there for them. You can be there to love on them, to help them, to guide them. You can demonstrate to them peace and contentment regardless of a situation. And then they will look at you and say, man, I don't know about that book, but, but what is going on in your life? And the power of God working through you and your testimony can be the initial step of touching someone's heart, right? And then you can lead them to this. And then you can tell them more about the truth, but we have to build that relationship first. So let's go back and look at some of the principles we covered today. First one is this. We will reap what we sow. Paul says in Galatians 6, 8, the one who sows to the flesh will reap destruction. Like I said, Jesus said to Peter, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. This simply means that regardless of how many times the government bails people out, regardless of how many times your parents clean up the mess, regardless of how many times you think you get away with it, our sin has consequences. But Corey, I've been forgiven of sin. That's wonderful. Sin still always has a price. If you steal a car and go blazing down I-24, almost catching up with traffic at 95 miles per hour or whatever it is, if you go blazing down I-24 in a stolen car and you wreck it into an embankment, get out and run, the cops finally catch you and on the way, right, to the police station, you say, God, forgive me. And you're genuine. He will forgive you. You're still gonna go to jail. There's still a price for sin. If you hurt people, even if God forgives you, you're still gonna have to clean up that mess. There's still a price for sin. Listen, there is always a price for sin. There's always a price for it. Our choices have consequences. This is why karma is a bad idea. Let me tell you why Eastern philosophical, the idea of karma is, is really, really stupid. And as a Christian, you should not buy into it. The idea of karma is that we all have a scale, right? You have all the awful things you've done and then you have the good things you have done. And in karma, they tell you, you have to do more good than you do bad and that's the only way you can tip the scale in your favor. As a Christian who reads the Bible, we should all understand that there is absolutely no way that we can do enough good to compensate for all the evil we have done. That's why we have the cross. Jesus came down and died for our sins because God knew that there is no way we could do enough good to compensate for all the evil that we have done and thought and acted upon. So karma is a really, really bad idea because karma is a losing game. It is only through the idea of Christianity, the idea, the idea of we will reap what we sow through Jesus Christ, right? And him paying the price for us. That's the only way that we can overcome all the evil we have done. So this idea of reaping what we sow, what we sow though, doesn't have to be all negative. This can also be very positive. If we reap what we sow and we sow into the things of God, right? If we invest into the things of God, we will reap more than we could have ever imagined. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, that if I invest into the things of God, the benefits of that far outweigh anything that I had invested. That's how gracious and good God is. This is why we should prioritize our time in prayer that when we invest in prayer, good things happen. When we read the word of God, that knowledge and wisdom eventually grows up into us and it becomes beneficial. The church community, that all these things pay off when we, when we sow into the things of God. 
It will change our lives and we will yield more and more of the things of God when we pour into those things. So what are we investing in? That's a good question to ask. And if we're investing in the things of God, if we are sowing into the things of God, we can trust that God's going to provide for us, whatever that looks like and whatever situation that looks like. And in this life, if we are investing into the things of God, if we're in a relationship with God, we can be as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Which again, simply means that we must distance ourselves from evil. We must be repentant of sin, right? Initially, and then if we do sin again, we repent for that, we feel remorse and we get away from that sin. And then we pray for God to give us the gift of wisdom. And if we distance ourselves from evil and pray for God's wisdom, you're going to be all right. You're gonna make it. You're gonna make the right decisions. You're gonna go down the right path. But listen, part of the provision of God and part of us trusting God is us being obedient to God. Listen, a lot of people say, well, Corey, I pray for things all the time, but, but, but God is not answering those prayers. Well, there's a couple of things about that. The Bible says in the book of James that the prayers of righteous people are effective. Corey, are you saying that God is not answering my prayers because I'm not living righteous? Yes. If we are looking at that, if the prayers of people who do what God tells them to do are effective, that leads a logical person to believe that if we are not living for God, our prayers are not being effective. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why. One, if you're not living for Jesus, you're living in conscious sin, but you're praying for that promotion at work. God cares more about your eternal soul than he cares about your promotion at work. Before he wants to get to the question of, can I get that promotion? God wants to deal with that sin in your life because it's going to destroy you. The other thing is, if we are not living in righteousness, if we're not living the way God wants us to live, we're probably not praying for the will of God in our life, we're praying selfishly. And the Bible says that whatever we ask for in Jesus's name, will be done for us. That doesn't mean I can tag Jesus' name on whatever I pray for and it gets answered. That means that when I pray in the will of God, God gives me that because that's his will for me. Whatever I pray for in the will of God, I get. And so when we're living righteously, our prayers are effective because we're praying for the things that God wants for us in our life. And we don't have to always deal with this unaddressed sin. So if maybe God's not working everything out for you right now, it's, it's again, I'm speaking logically. If we're living by our own path and then things go wrong, we're like, God, why aren't you leading me? God's like, you don't want me to lead you. You live in such a manner that says you don't want my leadership. So we can't get mad at God for that. We have to submit to him. And when we submit to him, it's interesting how life just kind of falls into the right place. It's fascinating. Another thing is this, this idea of fear, that a lot of people came to know the true God because of fear. And again, in American churches, we wanna make sure we do everything not to ever hurt anyone's feelings or say anything controversial. But it says in Proverbs 9:10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, some people say, well, fear there just means that you have a healthy respect. It doesn't. The Hebrew word there literally means to have dread. That's much different than respect. Now, fear can also mean a proper respect and reverence of God. But in these two verses, right, in Esther and in Proverbs, that Hebrew word means to have dread. That doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that we live in constant fear and being afraid of God. It means that we understand that he is the all-powerful creator of the universe, and if I am living in opposition to the creator of the universe, I should be a little bit afraid of that. Does that make sense? When I am trying to combat the creator of all things, that's pretty foolish, that's pretty dumb. And if I'm logically thinking, that should scare me to be in opposition to the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe. So what that should cause us to do is humble ourselves. It should cause us to humble ourselves and say, I wanna follow his lead. Because here's the thing, we blame way too much on the devil. I'm not saying the devil's not bad, he's bad, he's really bad, right? But we blame so much on him. If we were to pretend for a moment that the devil doesn't exist, 
If we are in an absence of a relationship with God, we don't even need the devil. We'll tear ourselves up pretty good without the devil. We rip ourselves apart. So a proper fear of God is understanding that if I'm not walking with him, I'm gonna destroy myself. I need to be with him, right? He knows all, he holds all power. And when we are doing all the things that we've talked about today, when we are following Christ, when we are living in the teachings and principles of the word of God, it's not just gonna change you. It'll start changing your family. It'll start changing your marriage. It'll start changing your kids. It'll start changing your neighborhoods. It'll start changing your work environment. Things will dramatically change around you when we submit and follow God. Now, how does that happen? How, listen, how do we posture ourselves to touch the hearts of the people around us? How do we do that? We say all the time in church, go out, right? Go out and share the gospel. Go out and tell people about, how do we do that? How do we do that effectively? The first thing we have to do is we have to be a good example. Listen, how you act matters. Everyone believes that, correct? How you act at work matters. How you act at restaurants matters. How you talk to your wife in public matters. How you talk to your wife in private matters. How you treat each other matters. How you treat the really annoying guy in the cubicle next to you matters. How you handle your temper when you're driving through Murfreesboro in the morning taking your daughter to school, right? Just, that's for someone else, that's not for me. How you handle yourself <laughs> matters. It matters. So our example matters. And a lot of times, again, because in modern Christianity in the United States, we just don't wanna offend anybody. We say, well, I'll just live really good and I, I don't, I don't wanna force Jesus down anyone's throat. Now, how you live matters, but you telling your story about how Jesus has changed your life also matters. The Bible says that the only way that people are saved is by hearing the word of God. And to hear the word of God, get this, hold on, you have to speak the word of God. Someone has to tell their story. It is not only by our example, because here's the thing. If you have a healthy, strong marriage, if you're raising your kids right, if you have a sense of joy, regardless of how you know, crazy the world is, when election time rolls around and you're not in a panic pulling your hair out, you know, looking to start a riot, when you're just chilled out and you're like, man, God's in control, people are gonna notice this peace and contentment in you. And they're gonna say, well, why are you so calm? And then you get to tell them. Then you get to share with them why you're so calm. You get to share your testimony because people will see the power of God working through you. They'll see the fruit of the Spirit working through you. And they will start to ask questions once you build that relationship. And this is so important that when we live by example, when we share the gospel, when we share why we have this peace and why we have this joy, not only will evil be overcome, people will be set free. Revelation 12, 11 is very, very powerful. They overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They overcame evil by the power of God and by sharing what the power of God has done in their lives with other people. That's how people's lives were set free. That's how people were brought into the truth. That's how people were delivered. That's how people's families were restored. Because again, listen, if you have a friend that's a stone cold atheist, they don't believe in this book. But if you have built a strong relationship with them and you have earned their trust and earned the right to speak into them, inevitably when the, when the junk hits the fan in their life, you will be there. And that's when you can hold them. And that's when you can pray with them. And that's when you can tell them, listen, do you know how I have, I have so much contentment in my life right now? It's because I gave my life to God and you will see people's lives changed. You will see people come to the realization that without the true God in their life, without a relationship with God, you have, you have every reason to be terrified. But if you walk in step with God, you have nothing to be afraid of, nothing. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you are not a believer or maybe you're a brand new believer, if, if either one of those groups has any questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Emily is up here, okay? If you have any questions for her, she'd love to talk with you. 
We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for absolutely anything, come up here and one of these men or women, they'd be more than happy to pray with you. The last thing is this. We have communion all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, literally 360 degrees around the room. And then if you're sitting in the center on these posts, there's some disposable communion. The communion is bread and wine that represents, I'm gonna say two things. The first thing is it it represents the fact that we don't have to depend on karma. (laughs) We don't have to worry about doing so much good that it compensates for all the bad we've done. Communion reminds us that the Son of God came down, died, shed his blood to forgive our sins, and all we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is ask God to forgive us, and all that evil is gone. He has forgiven us. That's the first thing it does. The second thing that communion reminds us of is that Jesus didn't stay dead, he resurrected. And because of that, you and I have access to the Holy Spirit of God. Because we have access to the Holy Spirit of God, we can not only be innocent as doves, we can be shrewd as serpents. We can have the gift of wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives. We can have the gift of discernment that gives us the ability to make good choices that we can have the counselor, which is the Holy Spirit with us, that we have all the things we need to live in a way that honors God and blesses other people. That's what communion represents. Everyone is welcome to take that as long as they've asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. I pray that you keep your hand on all of us in this room, Lord. As we go back out into this crazy world, as we face confusion, we face hostility, we face sadness, we face all kinds of obstacles, Lord, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our schools, wherever we go, it's out there. I pray, Father, that you make us shrewd as serpents, harmless as doves, that we can go out and and by your grace and by your provision, touch the hearts of people around us, God, that we can lead them to you, that we can build relationships, that we can be the light that you want us to be, God. Lord, we love you. We, we, We praise you, God. Keep your hand on everyone in this room. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.